to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 36 for March 31st, 2011. <laughs> no, you're supposed to come in in this part. You. Yeah, just your, your opening threw me off a little bit. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so this is motion picture era number 13. So we are coming to a close. Uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan is quickly approaching. Oh, on the horizon. One of my favorite stories. Movies, anyway. Yeah, it is. Uh, these stories leading up to it, maybe not so much my favorites. Well, not perfect. Yeah. As you will find out. Well, considering that you're in a time frame that may or may not ever have really existed, uh, you're good to get. You're you're lucky to get whatever you get, man. <laughs> yeah, actually, in in those lean years between um, original Trek and uh, the resurgence of the movies, uh, I would love to see. I would love to have these had these uh, these stories on on TV. Yeah, I'm just talking about how a lot of people, a lot of Star Trek fans, don't think that there was a second five year mission. Um, even though there's there's so much media or so much expanded universe type stuff that obviously shows that there was a second five year mission, but obviously, sir. <laughs> but uh, but anyways, I really like how the uh, the untold voyages, which we're going to be reading uh, today. I guess Marvel did it on purpose, where they did five issues. I don't think we've ever talked about this. That's why I'm bringing it up now. They did five issues, and each issue was in one of the years of that second five-year mission. So the first one was right after the motion picture, and the next one was about a year later, third one was a year later, and this one will be in year four. So hmm. I, I, I liked how they did that on purpose, um, and I, I don't know I don't know if it was on purpose, but it, I think in some of the dialogue in each issue they say, you know, we're in year – I mean, Sulu definitely says he's in year four in this one, so. Yeah. And sometimes they say that, like up front in the in the book too, don't they? In some issues. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's yeah, right. right. Okay. So, you want to just we, go straight into it? Yeah. Shall we get on with no further ado? Ah, uh, let's do it. Excellent. So this is Star Trek Untold Stories, issue number four, titled "Silent Cries." Published date is June 1998. Creative team is writer Glenn Greenberg, artist Michael Collins. Inker Keith Williams, colors by Matt Webb, letterer Chris Elopolis, and then it has slash VC. At least I think it's VC. Uh, is that some company or something? Or I'm not sure what that what that reference is at the end. Do you know, Donovan? Uh, I don't know. It, okay. it might be a company. I know sometimes they do have other companies doing like the colors and I guess letters, but I don't know yeah. what VC is. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, obviously Chris. E did, did, did a lot of work on it for lettering. Uh, editor is Jim Tui, and the editor-in-chief is Bob Harris. Harass. Something. Okay. The cover shows Uhura, Sulu, Chekhov, and an alien crew member standing in front of a rocky wall and peering down into a pit with a look of dread. Green tentacles are coming towards them, uh, as is a strong light source that casts ominous shadows. The catchphrase, Cries in the Dark, appears in the upper left-hand portion of the cover. The story begins with a full-page shot of the shuttlecraft Hoyle exiting the Enterprise. Kirk's log explains that he, Spock, McCoy, and Ambassador Alec Raymond are flying via shuttle to Paradis Four for strategic diplomatic discussions. The talks are extremely important and cannot be delayed. So they are off on that mission, at warp speed, mind you, while Sulu takes the Enterprise on a second mission to Duran-12. An undisclosed scientific discovery of great importance has taken place there and requires aid from the Enterprise. On the way to the Duran system, 
Sulu and the bridge crew recount their scariest missions. They all recount previous Enterprise missions most of us are familiar with, but Chekhov's story is the only one with a revelation. He tells of the time when Khan Noonien Singh took over the ship. The crew and, and learned readers are kind of surprised by this, since Chekhov was not actually a bridge officer until after the Khan incident. Chekhov explains he was on the Enterprise, just not a member of the bridge crew yet. He is disappointed that no one remembers him from those days and complains of being typecast. Hmm, sounds like an actor. They arrive at Duran 12, beam down uh, a landing party, and meet the Federation scientific team studying the big discovery. Sherilyn Carver is the super hot leader of the team of scientists. Sherilyn explains that a lone creature living on Duran 12, they have dubbed the Crier, has the ability to take in subspace communication waves and instantaneously rebroadcast them over huge distances. If the creature's abilities can be studied and somehow duplicated, it would be a boon to interstellar communication. The plan is to take the creature aboard the Enterprise and transport it to a Federation scientific installation. Later, aboard the Enterprise, preparations are being made to bring the creature aboard. When suddenly, seven Orion fighters approach the Enterprise on attack vectors. Two of the ships break off and head for the planet, while the rest surround the Enterprise. The Orions hail the Enterprise. Sulu says uh, it is a distraction tactic, but he orders Ohura to put them on screen. Commander Raiden of the Black Star Squadron addresses Sulu and bluntly says he is aware of the communications breakthrough on the planet and intends to take it to enhance the Orion pirating operations. Sulu says, Nuh-uh. Chekhov engages tractor beams and snares the two ships heading towards the planet's surface. The other five fighters attack the Enterprise. The shields hold, but over time finally begin to fail. After a long pitched battle, one of the smaller ships is des- destroyed and two disabled. Commander Raiden's ship attacks the Enterprise viciously on its own and is able to knock out weapons control and the tractor beam. Raiden's ship and the other two released ships head for the planet's surface. Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, Sulu is having feelings of self-doubt, but he gets over them and orders Scotty to make transporter repair a top priority. Meanwhile, on the planet, some of Raiden's men have the scientific team gathered together in one room. Just as things are getting ready to come to blows, Sulu, Chekhov, Ahura, and a security detail rush into the room and stun the four Orion thugs. Dr. Carver tells Sulu the rest of the Orions are at the cave trying to steal the crier. Action cuts to the site of the crier, where Raiden and five of his armed men are trying to figure out how to extract the crier from its pit. In frustration, Raiden shoots a crystal that appears to be connecting the crier to the pit wall. The shot, trigger, the shot triggers a violent eruption of outflowing energy that fries the Orions instantly. Sulu and the landing party get to the crier's site, and, fi- and what do they find but the Orion's equipment and piles of ash. They realize the Orion's are the ash just as the ground shakes and the crier's pit starts to emit energy again. After seeing the Orion's remains, they, the, the landing party runs away for their lives, when suddenly they see a bright ball of glowing flame with the crier in it ascending to the heavens. They conjecture the crier is getting away from this too crowded planet and probably any, quote, civilization for some peace and quiet. The story wraps up on the bridge with the thrilling threesome of Sulu, Ahura, and Chekhov. While repairs are going on around them, they acknowledge the loss of the potential communications leave forward was a, a bad thing. Also, Sulu thinks to himself how difficult this, vish, this adventure has been and how much he'd like to take the captain's chair again. Captain Sulu, the Excelsior, awaits. The end. So, n- not to 
belittle your um, your <laughs> synopsis, but uh, <laughs> you mind if I give my own synopsis real quick? <laughs> Go right ahead, Donnie. All right, so uh, Federation finds Creature, Enterprise goes to pick up Creature, Orion's tech attack in space, Orion's attack on planet, Orion's shoot at Creature, which then destroys them, Creature leaves the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that 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 covers the uh, the 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 bullet points of the of the story. Yes, yes. Dude, that was the whole story. Uh, so what, dude? Come on, <laughs> you, you're you're leaving out Sulu's uh, doubts of his own abilities, yet him being able to overcome it, to well, they, be able to lead the ship as kick as Kirk would. They didn't even kick an ass. seem like real doubts, though. It was just like. Oh, things aren't quite going the way I wanted them to. Maybe I should oh, stop. Which, you're putting your own which, spin on it. Which I thought was... I'm like, dude, it's not going that bad. <laughs> it's, dude, come on. The Enterprise has been screwed up before. Come on. Sky will get it working again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well another thing that happened, although I didn't mention it, is, um, is that that alien science officer... Uh, I forgot what his name was. But uh, during part of the attack... Of course, as always, which you've mentioned before, um, one of the the, engin- the science engineering count or the science sciences council blew up for no good reason, um, and then you know really damaged him. So, I mean, he had he had a, he had a disabled ship, he had the colonists to worry about on the planet. Uh, one of his bridge officers was seriously injured, um, and he probably didn't know how bad. And uh, yeah. Things look dire. Yeah, all right. And and, and 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 Kirk left him the keys to the brand new car. True. I don't know. I just it, it didn't left, seem it left like you cold. I mean, it left you cold. And I mean, they would lose the 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 crier. Right. That didn't seem like that bit bad of a deal. Yeah. Because, I mean, it was, I mean, yeah. I thought they could drop like subspace buoys ever so often so that they could still communicate instantaneously to Earth at any given time. Well, it does seem like any time they need to communicate with uh, Starfleet, um, you don't always know exactly. I mean, sometimes you know, but many times you don't necessarily know who those higher-ups are that Kirk's talking to or where they are. Um, But yeah, it seems like at times they're on Earth, and when they need to, they seem to be able to instantaneously communicate anytime they want. Right. So I didn't see what the big deal with the well, the crier even was. Well, I think they or what they try to make the case for here is if you go too far, uh, the present technology uh, doesn't give you instantaneous communication. Although, quite frankly, subspace communications in most cases seems to get the job done. Right. I, I know that there was an episode of Next Generation where they talked about how they needed to drop subspace buoys every so often. And, and, I just... and Enterprise did that one in an episode. Okay, right. Back in the old days. And it, Yeah, and I assume that they were doing the same thing back in Kirk's time, even though I don't remember them ever talking about it until that no. Next Generation episode. It, it was kind of like toilets. It's just one of those things. Yeah, it works. <laughs> That's it. Move on. Right. So anyway, so I started reading this comic, and I absolutely, absolutely loved the Chekhov retcon, where he was talking oh, about right. meeting Khan, <laughs> exactly. uh, and he even gave an excuse that, well, I was in engineering, and, and you know that, that that's the first place Khan tried to take over. And yeah, but w- wouldn't Scotty know then? Yeah, that, that didn't That didn't make sense to me. It, I, it was a joke, but, but yeah, Scotty should have known he was part of the engineering crew. Right, but uh, I thought that was great. Yeah, but but Scotty looked as surprised as everybody else. Yeah, no, he even says, "Sorry, lad, I don't even remember." I mean, he actually <laughs> says, "You were quite forgettable back then." And then Chekhov's like, "I don't believe it. I've been typecast." Which, anyways, I just thought that was that was uh, great. All the all the fanboys out there who you included, yeah, of course. Who have complained about that uh, that apparent misstep in continuity? Yeah, just I mean, I always just assumed Khan was that good that he 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 could see the future and he knew that Chekhov was going to be a part of it. Well, another thing that's right. Okay, so it wasn't unusual. I mean, the fact that that Chekhov 
knew about Khan, that wasn't too unusual. He could have read about it. Uh, absolutely. But the fact that Khan knew him, yes, yes, quite so. Yeah, and we've we've made the joke about it before that you know just because they're not on the bridge, uh, that doesn't mean they couldn't have been on the ship earlier. You know, because we we've talked about Sulu in some comics. He's he's on the Enterprise the day day one that Kirk shows up, and yet he doesn't show up until like episode three or four in the actual show. Right, and when so. Scotty was apparently on the Enterprise during the Talos Four thing, although we never saw him on the original uh, pilot. Right, because he wasn't chief engineer. He was just some random dude, engineering lackey. Yep, making making a distillery somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> Brewing up some scotch. Yeah, so some uh, some moonshine. So aside from that, I'll I'll be honest, I don't really have a lot to talk about on this one. I uh, I I didn't I didn't think that it was. Uh, it should have been a very nice vehicle to to highlight Sulu as a true commander and I didn't really see it that way mm. but I, I think you did uh, so I, 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 didn't, I didn't think it was a I don't, do not think this is a perfect comic by any means but I thought this gave uh, Sulu a chance to uh, strut his stuff under very uh, trying circumstances uh, unfortunately Chekhov and Uhura didn't get as much to do and the things they did give him to do seemed pretty strained um, especially when uh, Ohura is at the forefront of the uh, security uh, team that's rushing in there, taking out these huge Orions. These guys are not small. Nasty looking. Um, so they, they did stretch a bit on the other ones, but I thought Sulu had a, had a good chance to uh, strut his stuff. And I like seeing all three of them as the main characters, because, you know, in the, in the normal stories, it's, it's the Kirk, Spock, and McCoy show. So it's kind of nice to see another threesome, right? And then in the gold key stuff, it was always Kirk, Spock, and Scotty, blonde and surfer Scotty. Yes, he is sometimes blonde and surfer-like. So <laughs> it's just funny that that in those comics, Scotty had a bigger part than he maybe did actually in the show. Yeah. So no, I'm I'm all for giving the the second tier characters uh, some more screen time. Sure. It, it, you just don't think it was executed very well. No, because I didn't think Scotty. Re- I mean, Sulu really even did anything. They had a, a brief space battle. Enterprise was hurt pretty bad. Scott, Scotty, Scotty was able to fix at least the transporter so they can beam down, and they beam down just in time, to, or they beam down right after the creature already killed all the Orions, anyways. So it's like I don't really well, see what you did. Well, they beam down. They took out the Orions that were threatening the scientists. Yeah, those. Then they went. To, right. Uh, and saw the aftermath of the uh, Captain Raiden being fried. Right. Yeah, they basically ambush three little guys that are guarding the the scientists. (laughs) I think there were four guys, and they're pretty big. Maybe there were three. I don't know. I didn't count. You did notice that even the woman, uh, Orion, was bald. No, I didn't. Yeah, so I thought that was odd because usually you see Orion women and they still have their hair. So well, I didn't know maybe, if they, they, maybe they've got the sexual slave girl type of Orion women and the warrior kind of women. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say is that usually you don't see the Orion women as anything but the uh, play toys kind of thing. Play toys. Sex yeah. slaves. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, you know, uh, an engineer trainee on at Starfleet Academy that Kirk can seduce and, and is able to then rig up the Kobayashi Maru to <laughs> allow him to cheat. Indeed. You know, that's, those are the only two things you've ever seen Orion women do, so that means that's all they can ever do. Exactly. Right? Isn't that how it that's works? good. Paint that stereotype. <laughs> Anyways, I did like how the Orions are depicted as being huge because I think that's the way they're supposed to be. Yeah. And aggressive. And nasty looking. And I thought the art I thought the artwork was pretty good. Oh, the, the comic is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, definitely everybody's kind of uh, superhero idealized. But uh, uh, and and Uhura is looking the look, looking the thinnest I've ever seen her. 
in any kind of Star Trek property. So everybody's looking good. Yeah, and and you know that that shirt was painted on Sulu, and he is right. flexing in every single shot he's in. <laughs> Even just sitting in his chair, he has those like Bruce Lee muscles just popping out of his exactly shirt. Yes. Everybody's superhero time. Yeah, the the only bit of artwork that I thought was really off was towards the beginning, right when Chekhov starts telling his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the picture of Chekhov there, uh, when he's kind of in the background, and he says, oh, that is easy. He looks like a 100-year-old man or something. Yeah. He, it's like... It's like the worst picture of Chekhov I've ever seen. He's he's pretty far in the background, and you kind of see the back of Ahura, and you see the back of uh, Scotty and Sulu's heads. Well, he, well, good lord, that he's so far in the background. You mean that? Yeah, but when you're at, when you have the comic book in front of you, you know it's it's pretty good size, so that you can see it without having to zoom in and get distorted. It's just he looks like a, he's like a million years old. Oh wow! Okay. It's just I, when I was reading it, I'm like, "That's that's that's Chekhov." Okay, and then the next picture, okay, well, he looks normal. I just zoomed in like 200 percent, and he does look pretty weird. But he's it, actually he looks more like uh, an elf. He lo- <laughs> well, he looks a little bit like that guy that 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 guy in that Miri episode. With a kind think... of scrunched up face. It's, okay. What's that guy's name again? Mr. Mitchell Pitalik. <laughs> right. From okay, Superboy. Fine. Whatever. Fine, 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 fine. <laughs> yeah. No, uh... I just thought it was weird. That that was the only bit of artwork that I thought was was off. Yeah. It, it, overall, they, they they do a good job on these things. I like the Hoyle. At least I think it's the Hoyle. It looks like Hoyle. It's a stylized script on the on the hull, the shuttlecraft. Right. Yeah. Um, so they're naming and... they're naming their ships after card companies now. <laughs> card game companies. Yeah. Is is the next one going to be the Parker Brothers? Uh, I'm sure that's not what they named it after. I'm oh. sure there's some scientist or something named Hoyle, although I don't know off the top of my head. But uh, it, it's a good looking shuttlecraft. I mean, a lot of these uh, the these these post movie uh, comic books, I guess, because of contractual obligations, which obviously is not affecting the Marvel comics, but uh, sometimes it's really interesting, the shuttles that end up popping up in, in them. But uh, the Hoyle's pretty pretty good looking. It looks like a substantial shuttlecraft, and I guess it has to be because it's got warp drive. Right, it has... It, yeah, it doesn't look like it has the... Because in the original movie, there was the shuttlecraft attached to a warp sled, where right. this looks like the nacelles are actually attached to the ship itself, kind of like what we see in exactly. later uh, Star Trek movies. Right, and that 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 one with the on um, that shuttle attached to the sled, I, I think that was supposed to be Vulcan or something. Uh, uh, I, I think, think that was, I think that was a Vulcan shuttlecraft, but yeah, who knows? I, I don't know, but I, I think it was. Um, but yeah, so to the best of my recollection, this is the first time. They've had, and I could be wrong, but a warp-capable uh, shuttlecraft in a story. I mean, they had them in Next Gen, fine, but I don't remember them having it in... Uh... Well, they've had it in a few of the other stories we've read here recently. Really? Yeah, but they always had the warp, warp sled attached to it. Well, okay, well, I just... Okay, I only remember the one comic where they basically were reusing the, what I'll call a Vulcan, shuttlecraft with the warp sled. But that was just one comic, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that I've they, seen it before. And did they actually say that was warp capable in that comic? I think so. But okay. but I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. That was a while ago. Yeah, that was a little while ago. Anyway, so let's let's say this is one of the first times. I yeah. thought I thought that was that was interesting. Uh, them them saying it was warp capable. And it's a good looking ship. It is a good-looking ship. It is. Um, it's a little bit more, and and I think the the Star Trek Eleven movie um, has a it shows a really nice variety of shuttle uh, configurations, and those look pretty cool. Uh, right, like, like big, big, uh, pretty good size shuttles that that can carry dozens of people, troop carrier kind of things, and uh, so. 
those are pretty cool looking uh, shuttlecrafts too. But this is uh, I this is a good this is a good looking shuttlecraft. So you want to jump straight into comic strip number fifteen here? Oh please, let's do it. All right. So next up is Star Trek comic strip number fifteen. Uh, these were in your local newspapers starting November first, nineteen eighty two, and ended in February twelfth, nineteen eighty three. It's untitled again. Uh, I guess they, they pretty much stopped titling them for a while. Uh, but uh, the writer was Martin Pascal, and the artist was Patrick Shigantini. Uh, this is actually the last comic strip that these two guys will be working on. So we get uh, different artists and uh, a new writer starting next issue or next story arc. Yay, new artist. Sorry, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, these these aren't great. Um, and also, it seems like the format changed a little bit because uh, there doesn't seem to be any Sunday pages anymore. So I don't know if uh, the scans that we're seeing, they just got, stopped scanning the Sunday pages, but um, I didn't notice any lapse in the story. So I, I'm thinking that uh, they just stopped doing a Sunday paper and it was just six days a week. But I don't know for sure. All right, so story starts off with Spock, Kirk, and a new crew member called Lieutenant Tayi, uh, who seems to be like a blonde Vulcan woman. Uh, they're on a planet picking up some medical supplies. Uh, they are then attacked by some crazy local, um, Tayi. I'm gonna I'm gonna be having a hard time with this name. Uh, her name is Tayi. Uh, she's slightly hurt. Uh, but otherwise, everyone is unscathed, and they beam back up to the ship w along with the medical supplies. So the Enterprise is en route to deliver the uh, before-mentioned medical supplies uh, when McCoy starts acting a little strange. Uh, strange enough so that uh, Spock starts thinking that he might be an imposter. Um, and then just a side note, uh, perhaps McCoy's doppelganger from the earlier The Real McCoy episode is back. He's not really. I'm just throwing that out there. Anyways, meanwhile, the crazy McCoy is uh, acting strangely, uh, and Dr. Chapel is exposed to, like, an exploding terminal, and when she wakes up, she starts acting strange, uh, and she actually starts to attack the injured Lieutenant Tayi, who's been in sickbay all this time. All right, so we flash to Spock... Uh, who actually ends up ambushing and then mind-melding with McCoy, and he's able to prove that this is not the real McCoy. Uh, this is actually an alien imposter. So now that Spock has this proof that he's really an alien, he lets McCoy go and just erases his memories so that uh, the alien McCoy won't remember being ambushed, which is odd. Anyways, the Enterprise enters an ion storm uh, when they're attacked by some Romulan ships. It seems that they are way off course and are actually in Romulan space. So somehow the ship has gone astray. Uh, the attack from the Romulans does some serious damage to the ship. Once the attack is done, the Romulans break off their attack and retreat, much to everyone's consternation. An injured Scotty is also attacked by one of the alien imposters. Uh, we see him that he gets scanned and that an alien double is made of him. The alien Tayir, or Tayi, uh, goes up to distract Kirk, i.e. seduce him, as the alien Scotty tries to go and delete the medical information from the computer libraries. Uh, Spock catches Scotty red-handed, and a short fight ensues, ending with Scotty fleeing and Spock damaging and destroying the terminal to prevent any future sabotage or any type of future use, because he smashes it with his hands. Kirk is called away from the nightgown-wearing Tayi, much to his disappointment. Uh, he and Spock uh, speculate on what's happening with the alien doppelgangers, and they discover that the medical supplies that they've been ca uh, carting around is actually empty. Uh, they find out that, uh, that there was an alien inside of the supplies that then ate the supplies and is now reproducing and duplicating the crew. 
Just then, the alien bursts through the wall and attacks Kirk and Spock. Uh, the creature is a shape-shifting monster and is eventually stunned and captured. The alien cloned crew members start a revolt, uh, vowing to kill all of the remaining crew. Uh, they plan to do this by plotting the Enterprise to crash into a nearby planet uh, while they, the cloned crew, beam safely to the planet before impact. Um, with the planets, or excuse me, with the aliens now on the planet, Spock starts his great Easter egg hunt to try to find all of the real crew who are hidden away in cubby holes and closets all around the ship. Uh, while he's doing this, Kirk and Chekhov beam over to confront the aliens directly. Uh, Kirk and Chekhov split up. Kirk is confronted with the alien Tayi uh, as she's trying to distract him again in only the, the in the special little way that she has for Kirk. Uh, another alien tries to sneak up and attack Kirk, but to check off fires, and the alien to Yi is hit and dies. Um, they are then confronted by all the other aliens, uh, but right before they're able to swarm Chekhov and Kirk, uh, the Enterprise is able to fire from orbit and stun all of the aliens. Yes, somehow there's a giant stun setting on the Enterprise itself. Um, it doesn't really explain how the crew was able to regain control of the ship. They just they just have. In closing, the plot was for the aliens to duplicate the crew and allow the Romulans to take the ship. Uh, it's not really explained why the aliens decided to crash the ship uh, and and kill everybody instead of handing it over to the Romulans like the original plan was. Uh, Kirk attempts to hit on the real Yeti, uh, but she shoots him down, and that's the uh, joke in the story. So exactly. So Kirk, yes. Kirk got him some uh, blonde Vulcan alien clone loving in this one. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know exactly what uh, Tai is. I mean, she's got the uh, she's got the Vulcan-like ears. Um. But, you know, she she she, she doesn't she, she looks like I mean I I don't think I've ever seen a blonde uh, Vulcan Vulcan before. But nope, not sure what she is. But she's kind of cute. Actually, she reminds me a little bit of um, Tess yeah. on I think it was Tess. Yep. On on Voyager. Yep, she does. She does look a little Tess-like. She has the kind of the spiky blonde hair. Mm-hmm. A cute little thing. Right. And uh, I, lecherous old Kirk is all over that. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and then when <laughs> when he gets interrupted, when you know when Spock finds out that the uh, that their alien doppelganger is all over the place, the first thing McCoy or the first thing Kirk says is, "I said not to bother me for another hour." <laughs> and then, yes. And then Spock says, uh, "Well, sorry, sir, but." Uh... <laughs> This might be a tad more important <laughs> than your libido and satisfying it. Anyways, it never really explained how McCoy, who who was the first one to become infected or mm -hmm. replaced or whatever you want to call it, uh, how did that actually happen? Because well, it, it seemed to happen very fast, right? Because I mean, I mean, they 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 had the they they had the medical supplies, and it's like slap bang howdy. Uh, McCoy had these very poorly drawn, like like bright eyes or something. I mean, uh, you read in the comic book, you know something's wrong. Uh, but of course, nobody else in the story can can detect this. But they got all these little lines, almost like uh, like McCoy has uh, sparkly eyes or something. So um, I thought that the uh, the artwork was really poor in this comic. Uh, the backgrounds are typically like. Plain backgrounds, just plain white. And then when there is something in the background, it's usually extremely simply drawn. And the characters, I mean, there, there's a few spots where it's not too bad. The faces are done okay, but um, on the whole, uh, not not good. And some of the things are absolute. I mean, I could have done it when I was, tw you know, looks like what I would have drawn when I was ten or nine. As some of them are that bad. Um, and that Kirk looks really jowly in this. <laughs> 
which is in in some of the shots. In some of the shots, it seems like they just took headshots from the actors, mm-hmm. um, and you photos, know, right? Kind of traced just, them or traced them or something. Got yeah, tracing paper. Right, but but they put them in the same panel as if they're talking to each other, and yet they're kind of looking in different directions because, you know, the headshot <laughs> that they got was from a different scene when those two people weren't actually talking. Right. Um, so it's a little, you know, it's a little off-putting from time to time that they're not actually looking at each other when they're supposed to be talking and, and having this serious yeah. conversation. Yep. Yeah, so uh, Invasion of the Pod People episode. Uh, so that's not that's not too new. It's not a very too new theme. But, yeah, but uh, it was never done in the original series, so this... It's kind of the first time we've had it for Star Trek. Right? Um, I mean, well, I'm... for the original Star Trek, uh, well, what about the ones where, where there truly were uh, pods? I mean, literally flowers or something. What, what, I, I, I know there was an original Trek one where uh, I think Jill Ireland was in it or something like that. Uh, where where Kirk and Spock and everybody beam down to the Enterprise, and there's like a farming community or something, and then there ends up being these like flowers that take over that took over the colonists, and then the these flowers were brought on the Enterprise, and like the whole crew's taken over, and Kirk's like the last one. Huh. That's not jarring jarring any memories. Well, it's out there, and uh. then uh, and then 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 this is another one where. Where the uh, the main the main female character guest star uh, was hot on uh, Spock, so oh that that might be why I don't remember it because uh, you know you don't like the hot on Spock episodes. No, I don't. <laughs> they should only have eyes for Kirk. Oh come now! <laughs> Even Bones got an episode. Yep, but uh, but definitely Spock tended to be second in line to get loving, but yeah. That captain, Captain Tight Pants, he was definitely out in front of everybody by a long way in the romance department. So you did notice that in this one. Uh, I mean, of course you noticed, but we didn't bring it up in the in the synopsis because it's not pertinent to the story. But they have an episode. They have a shot where Kirk is working out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's doing the whole hanging from the ceiling, doing uh, sit-ups. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. That is hilarious, I thought. <laughs> and it looks in good shape from there. But so many of the shots, so many of the facial shots, it just looks like he's got kind of a, kind of a, you know, fat face or something. Right. Yeah, I see it. Kind, kind of thick, thick neck. Uh, and that's not from muscle. <laughs> that's from Admiral in. <laughs> Taking the desk job. Well, when you're admiral in, you tend to get that spread going. <laughs> uh, yeah, so something that kind of bugged me about it is um, I, I think there was a point where like 94% of the crew was taken over. I, I, th- I think they actually quoted that stat. Yeah, they did. Like 94% of the crew is, is, has, taken over, has been taken over. And then it's obvious to the aliens that, that Kirk and Spock, they, they know that they're aliens. And then they all leave the ship. It's like, really? What? You're you got you got ninety four to ninety four percent advantage to six percent, and you're going to leave the ship, which you were going to, you know, give to the Romulans, you know, for favors or something. I don't know what what the deal was exactly. Right. I don't know. That just didn't seem to make any sense to me. No, it did not. And then. Um, and wh- where the hell was all the crew? I mean, the ship's not that big that you can't basically oh. double the crew, uh, but oh, just right. have people stashed away in cubby stashed holes. Stashed in cupboards and, <laughs> and cupboards and closets and stuff. Like, look under the bed. Hey, there's McCoy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, didn't they find Scotty in the in his, in his quarters or something? I don't know. They were finding him in, in closets and under the bed. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and and I guess if they put them mostly in their quarters, that kind of makes sense because everybody has to sleep. But uh, I guess you know, and during the waking day, maybe you wouldn't think to look in their quarters. But uh, whatever, it just it just seemed like with that big an edge, why are you running off the ship? 
Right, and, and another thing is that the the crew that was knocked out, they weren't, or the that were in these cubby holes, they're not knocked out. They they can, I mean, as soon as Spock opens the door, they're like, "Hey, what's up?" <laughs> <laughs> Which was handy since they needed to uh, have some help to get the right get the ship from not decaying their orbit into oblivion. Yeah, well, I wish they explained how they actually were able to fix that. So quickly, yeah. Because one minute they're they're trying to find all the crew and they're in the Easter egg hunt, and then in the next shot of the Enterprise, they're completely under control and they can stun a big group of aliens from yeah. it. Yeah, and that also brings up a good point. These aliens are really dumb. So not only are they going to leave the ship when they've already got the regular crew outnumbered by huge margins, but well, what's going to happen when they leave the ship? They're going to go ahead and try to set it into a decaying orbit so hopefully the ship gets destroyed. It's like, well, what if that doesn't happen? I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's a fully functional starship. And uh, what, what, think a few steps ahead, aliens. Right. And this is just not a good idea. Yeah, this, this story had a lot of potholes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I really... Okay, so so the Romulans were in this one, for a second. but they, sh- yeah, for a little while. Uh, and, but again, it's the Romulans using Klingon designs. Okay, now so so it's basically a Klingon ship. Uh, right. At least they look like Klingon ships. Yep. And it's like in the original series. So maybe they're trying to be in sync with with something that happened in the original series, but really, it's like, I you know. I thought the I always I always questioned why the original series did that. I figured it was a budgetary thing or something. You know, yeah. they got a lot of got a lot of Klingon footage and really don't have any Romulan footage and the budget's pretty tight this this month. You know, let's go ahead and just hey, let's just say they're using Klingon designs. Well, yeah, that, okay. that was exactly it. They didn't they didn't have the budget to make more um models. Ships. Okay. So they had like the little the little um scout thing from from uh, Romulans, that was right. using in the, using that balance of terror one, right? Um, but they didn't have any like big capital ships that would actually give the Enterprise a run for its money, so they started just reusing Klingon stuff. Okay, and so and that's what I thought it was, but it's like this cartoon didn't need to do that. <laughs> I mean, they could have they could have done anything they wanted to do. Yeah, but I mean, but that that was the only Romulan. I mean. At this point in time, when this this issue was released, I mean, they didn't have any other Romulan design to go off of. I mean, they could have just made one up from scratch, but I guess they were just trying to keep it in continuity. I don't know. Well, I think it's I think it's again having to do with budgetary constraints more than continuity, because there was a fair amount of time went by, you know, between the the TV series when they were using the Klingon designs and the the time period when these comics took place. So, right, um, but how how are they supposed to know what a Romulan ship was going to look like if they ever used it in the movie? Be creative. Yeah, so that's what I said. They could have made up their own. They could, have, yeah. But but again, I mean, obviously, the you know the the artist that did this, um, uh, Padre, pa, Padraic, whatever the name is, uh, you know, he probably had a lot of time pressures and everything else. They probably had a very uh, aggressive schedule to go under, so he was obviously just cranking this stuff out. And I guess that must have been the thinking because I, I just I just thought it was weak, right? But I can understand why he pro- they probably did it. They didn't have time to develop new ships and whatever. But hmm. anyway, so uh, you notice that Spock does something very unvulcan like in this uh, in this episode. He uh, he lies. Oh my lord! Which Vulcans aren't supposed to lie. Because when he uh, he knocks but out, didn't he prefabricate, or didn't he have? Didn't Spock have some kind of uh, justification for that? Because he had yeah, but that was that was later. That was in the movies. I don't think they did that in the old show. Okay. Well, well but when when he knocks out McCoy, and some ensign just happens to walk by, Spock lies and oh, says, man. "Oh, I'm teaching him a meditation." Blah blah blah. <laughs> no, that no. Actually, what he said was which is really suspect, I think, is he said, I am, 
I am showing him an ancient. It was respiration. Oh, here it is. Respiration. Artificial respiration technique. Right. Artificial. Artif- isn't that what you do when you put somebody down and you massage their chest and then open their mouth and then do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? Isn't that artificial respiration? Yeah. It's like Spock. You were doing that, <laughs> McCoy. I think you were taking advantage of him uh, being out. <laughs> But I just thought it was funny that the ensign was like, he didn't say, but I understand, Spock, but why are you doing it in the middle of the hallway? <laughs> All he says is, oh, ah, right, I see. And, and of course, the, the look on Spock's face is actually pretty good. I mean, you know, it's, it's like a deadpan kind of thing. I, I mean, I, I got humor out of, out, of, out of what they were trying there, right. which, again, is not very Vulcan. But. Right, and w- what's, what's funny is that that whole scene, so McCoy – is in a corridor and he hears uh to ye scream because she's being attacked by chapel um and while he's listening to her scream spot knocks him out so spot couldn't hear her screaming because because spock doesn't do anything for her he just knocks mccoy out while he's listening uh and then drags him over there and starts doing the uh mind meld right which I thought was odd, and then he proves that McCoy is an alien, and his solution was to let him go. Which I thought was really weird. Why would he let him go? Except that the plot needed him to be loose. Well, I think the only justification there was they didn't want to tip their hand yet. The only thing is, um, okay, fine. If you if you want to let them go, let McCoy go and make him not remember uh, when Vulcan did, when, when Spock did the neck pinch, that's fine. But you should be more, I don't know, uh, aggressively figuring out what your next move is going to be. <laughs> Instead I mean, of it, letting... It seemed like it was like, uh, blah, 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 all kinds of things going on. Hey, what are we going to do about this, uh, this invasion, Jim? Oh, yeah. Well, we'll worry about that later. We'll, we'll worry about it when 94% of the crew is gone. <laughs> exactly. It seemed like there wasn't much of a uh, much urgency on anybody's uh, part. Yeah, because, yeah, there's only two people at the time that he finds the finds out, and then by the time they do anything about it, 94% of the whole crew. Yeah, right. I, I agree with you. And, and, I just, and, and, in mind – oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. Well, I just want to also say that about the same time is about when the uh, – Romulans show up. Right. So it's like, what the hell were the Romulans doing in there? Um, I mean, they're there. They're surrounding the Enterprise. It looks like it's going to come to blows. And then they just leave. Yeah. So Yeah, the whole attack I, so, is off screen. Oh, so there – okay. So there was an attack, though. They actually fired on them. Yeah. Yeah, because it actually says that uh, their their engines are are damaged. And then they don't think they're going to be able to make the rendezvous, so um, so that other ship shows up to try to pick up the medical supplies, which I didn't go over in the synopsis. Well, but. I I I thought that was all delayed because because they were being taken over and they couldn't make it right away. Well, but. where they get they get hit, and then it shows McCoy or it shows Scotty injured and passing out, and then he wakes up when when one of the aliens is about to uh, tranquilize him. That that's the only shot of the attack, but supposedly it was a it was a pretty bad attack. Hmm. But then that other ship shows yeah, I'm up. Still not seeing it. But 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 the th- the only thing that could explain the um well, well the Romulan attack obviously is because they're trying to delay and give more time to, for the takeover to happen. That that's the only justification I saw. Oh, that, I guess that would make sense. It's about it's about the only justification I'm coming up with, but and then the alien and then the aliens pretty much screw over the Romulans and they're just going to crash the ship, <laughs> crash the ship, and uh, yeah, beam down to the planet. Yeah, and I must say, um, in this area, there's a crewman that says a few things with a little little pencil thin mustache, <laughs> and it's like, man, he's drawn like an idiot. Yeah, he looks a little bit like the old Thin Man. Oh, you know who he looks like? He looks like Guy from Galaxy Quest. Ah, there you go. That could be. That could be. 
Who's the Thin Man? Uh, William Powell. The Thin Man. You know the Thin Man. Do I? Oh, man. Well, maybe you don't. Uh, but these are really old movies, but there was a whole series of them. Okay. And you also don't know who Quester is. Yeah, who's Quester? Is that true? You don't know who Quester is? So, Quester tapes, real fast, because we are in the weeds now. Um, <laughs> it was a yet another failed uh, Gene Roddenberry attempt to bring a TV series to, to, to air after uh, Star Trek. Uh, he really wasn't too successful uh, after Star Trek. But uh, Quester tapes, it was just a movie. They never got turned into a TV series. So it was like a movie of the week kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Quester is basically an android. He is the he's basically the model for uh, for what would eventually become Data. And then uh, it was kind of like the adventures of the lone robot in the '70s with his buddy, who's an engineer, huh? Mike Farrell. So um, and, and basically having a very similar mission to uh, Gary Seven. Uh, you know, kind of kind of steering humanity, you know, humanity makes all the de- all the, their decisions, but you help them where you can, make a little adjustments here and there, you know, that kind of thing. So was was it futuristic? Mm, not overly. I mean, Quester himself was, uh, I mean, it was supposed to take, take, I think it was 74, 76, something like that. I mean, Quester was a pretty advanced robot, but you find out at the end that, he is the product of some pretty heavy technology that was far beyond the 70s. Uh, and actually, it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't know whether it was supposed to be of alien origin or what. I suppose it would have to be. Anyway, there was a, it turned out there was a whole series of robots stretching back into the millennia of Earth's history that, that performed this role. And Quester was just the latest in that series. And interestingly enough... Uh, Questor's uh, lifespan was 200 years, and he was basically the last of this series of robots. So the idea was, in 200 years, man would be mature enough to not need uh, these guardian robots anymore. Hmm. Which was an obvious tie-in to Star Trek, hello. And Roddenberry also, I remember uh, an old TV show he did, which didn't last very long. I, th- I actually think that was turned into a TV show. Maybe it was just a movie. And it was with Robert Culp and I forgot the other guy. It was kind of like a, two, a buddy adventurous kind of thing, but kind of having to do with the occult and stuff. Hmm. Never heard of it. Yeah, I, I don't remember the title of that. I kind of like that. Okay, enough of that. You digress too much. See, there's benefits to being old. Yeah, well, I'll be there soon enough. (laughs) And I'll know a whole bunch of stuff about new kids on the block that my kids will be like, (laughs) new kids on the what? (laughs) And you will have it all over them. I think it's funny that uh, my, my sister was really big into new kids on the block, so from just osmosis I unfortunately have a lot of new kids on the block uh, trivia anyway so we were talking about Star Trek at one point in this yes we were so I I really didn't have anything else to say about this lovely comic strip yeah I don't either Uh, that was basically all I had Um, the storytelling is choppy because it's a it's a comic strip sure but I am looking forward to somebody else's writing and somebody else's art um just to get a different take. Although I've kind of scanned through some of these later ones, and they're they're you know they're, they're products of their time and the medium. They're not they're not comic book quality, I don't think. Yeah, which you really can't expect. No. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's only five of them left. Each one is written by a man named Gary Conway. Um. And then we get a, a kind of three different artists throughout the, the next five issues or next five story arcs. And I think they start getting really short. So the story arcs are like just a, you know, a few weeks worth of story arc and then, and then they're on to the next one. So we're really winding down here. Okay. Winding down on two uh, sub-series. Well, yeah, and the Marvel one is ending too. So 
the normal monthly Marvel one. Next week we're going to review episode number or issue number 14. Uh, there's only 18 issues of that series total, so we got about five left of that too. Or four. <laughs> or four. Yeah, uh, I never said math was my greatest subject. Exactly. So. Well, it was a pretty hard equation. So, <laughs> you know. uh, I majored in Star Trek trivia. Didn't you know that, Ken? Uh, no, Donovan, I didn't. I didn't know you could get a degree in that. Oh, yeah. It's from uh, Starfleet Academy. I, I can print you <laughs> off one. Of course. Of course it would be from Starfleet Academy. That makes perfect sense. I can print you off a certificate. It's it's completely valid. <laughs> uh, it, it's, a, it's fully accredited. Well, uh, unfortunately, the credits do not uh, roll over to other universities, but uh, but once you have your degree, why do you need to keep going? Good point. Excellent point. <laughs> okay. All right. So speaking of next week. Next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. We got on the ticket uh, Marvel number 14 and comic strip number 60. So what? should be a good one. And uh, just to kind of go over the elsewhere, uh, this is June 1998. Uh, and the only other thing other than Marvel comics that were coming out this month was... Uh, book one and book two of The Captain's Table came out. Uh, we've kind of already talked about this back when we were doing uh, Early Voyages number 17, because that also came out in June. So if anybody wants to know more about The Captain's Table novels, uh, go back to that uh, that episode. And we talk about it there. So that's it. Anything else, Ken? Any parting, parting nuggets of information from old TV shows long gone? <clears throat> No, actually, there was another series that actually ran a little while <sighs> with John Saxon starred in it. John another Roddenberry. John Saxon, the guy from Nightmare on Elm Street? Yes, yes, him. Only he was younger and more Kirk-like. And he played a Kirk-like character in, was it Earth 2? Mm, I'm not quite sure. But it was like a post-apocalyptic Earth kind of thing. And people were running around in uh, in uh, in monorails under the ground, and it was a little bit like uh, I don't know, a little bit like uh, like I don't want to say Planet of the Apes, but you know, post-apocalyptic kind of thing. It, that that one actually I think lasted a little longer, but that was another uh, Roddenberry TV show which I enjoyed quite a bit. I have to, I have to look at that one, see if I can find those. You know what? I, I'll be honest. I did not know Roddenberry did too much other stuff other than Star Trek and and all that stuff that came out after he died, like uh, new. Uh, oh, that that Majel Barrett did. Yeah, the uh, what was the Kevin uh, Sorbo show? It was the name of the show. I. I Andromeda. Andromeda, there you go. Yeah, Andromeda. And then there was the other one with the the little alien, bald alien chick that I never watched either. Well, there was that that one where the Earth was taken over, was being... Yeah, like... The, the, the aliens came in friendship and then turned out to be nasty, a little V-ish. Only, uh, yeah, I forgot what they call that one. I, I Both were not that good. Unfortunately, uh, and then they actually they they remade that second one uh, multiple ways, changed changed um, changed out the actors, the lead actors, and it just never really worked. And what was that one called? Conflict Earth or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, really. As as it turned out, from a commercial success, Star Trek was about it for Roddenberry. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. No, no, he he did a lot of other short-lived things. Did he ever actually do a western? Because I know he always. No, nah. I mean that's what Star Trek that was supposed of. to kind of be was a western. Yeah, but but he only did that to sell the idea. Well, I didn't know if he had done other westerns, and that's kind of how he got his foot in the door. Uh, I think he originally got his foot in the door writing some kind of a cop show. It was something like The Lieutenant, or you know, some, I forgot what it was exactly, but it was some. It was a cop show. Huh. And it really, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't remember enough detail about it, but um, I think, 
I think that was a show that that had had somewhat of a run. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was his show, as opposed to him just being a writer for it. But he might have been just been a writer for it. Anyway, it's been a great time, Donovan. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on. So we'll see everybody next week. Sounds on great. Star Trek comic book review. <laughs> see you next week. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.